This is David Wilcox. You're listening to The Soul of Life. Hey, it's Keith Miller. Welcome back to another replay episode of The Soul of Life. Going to do a throwback episode of one of my favorite discussions that I had with anyone in all of my 70-plus episodes. It's with Deirdre Wallenick Honnold. That's Alex Honnold's mom. If you don't know who Alex Honnold is, just take a second and Google it. But if you're afraid of heights, trust me, your palms are going to start sweating. Alex is no stranger to making the news for his death-defying ability to climb speed routes without protection that give other expert climbers nightmares. And Alex, Deirdre's son, is a rock climber in a special club. That's because he's still alive. One of Alex's good friends, in fact, rock climbing legend Tommy Caldwell said, all of the other free solo climbers in the world are dead. So Alex is in a unique club. The chance to talk with Deirdre was amazing, and that's why I'm sharing this again with you. She's a former teacher. She's also become a rock climber. We talk about her book, The Sharp End of Life. And uh, I really recommend that you watch this episode of The Soul of Life on the YouTube channel because I put a lot into the production of showing some clips of Alex at the very beginning because he's featured in so many amazing documentaries, including the blockbuster about him called Free Solo. So here is a replay of The Edge of Fear, Deirdre Wallenick Honnold, about Alex Honnold and their life together. There was no definition of the mind that anybody had. I'm Keith Miller. That's really weird. Can we swear on this? Something you hear at a swing party. <laughs> Something that sounds fun. We don't treat trauma. We treat the imprint of traumatic experience. I stood on top of the Olympic podium, very incomplete, not happy, and never ever thinking that I was good enough. Donald watched the older brother be destroyed that way. So he had to exile all the sensitive parts of him. Free soloing is climbing without ropes. Alex was born for climbing. Cannabis use disorder is real. There's no question about it. The, the broccoli growers of America are livid every time that they listen to this part of your podcast. What happens before sex? What happens during sex? What happens after sex? Compassion is contagious. We've got to have cake. Oh my God, I totally am bisexual and that's where I gotta be. He's incredibly successful by just talking shit about people's fried rice. This is the soul of life. I always laugh or chuckle when I hear people compare him to like Michael Jordan or other people in other sports like that. In none of those sports, if you don't make it, you won't die. At the age of 66, Deirdre Wallenick became the oldest woman to climb El Capitan, the iconic 3,200-foot granite wall in Yosemite National Park in October of 2017. For her, this wasn't just any climb. Yes, the captain is perhaps the most prized big wall climbs in the world. But it was in June of that same year that Deirdre's son, Alex Honnold, stunned and terrified the world by climbing without ropes a free solo ascent this vertical wall that rises half mile out of the earth in Yosemite National Park. Alex is no stranger to making news for his death-defying ability to speed climb routes without protection that give other expert climbers nightmares. In fact, Honnold is a rock climber in a special club because he's still alive. Everybody who has made free soloing a big part of their life is dead now. 
That's from the blockbuster documentary Free Solo by National Geographic, which won seven Emmys and an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature in 2019. Talking to Alex's mom, Deirdre, gave me a glimpse of what kind of parents let their kids grow up on the edge of life. Why would you let him do that? I think when he's free soloing, that's when he feels the most alive, most everything. How can you even think about taking that away from somebody? Alex became world famous in 2018 with two high-risk rope-free ascents, the northwest face of Yosemite's Half Dome and the Moonlight Buttress in Utah's Zion National Park. For years, he lived the so-called dirtbag life, sleeping in a van most of the time and climbing in a category by himself, undisputedly, as his best-selling book puts it alone on the wall. Alex always preferred to emulate his dad, and his dad suffered from... But nowadays, it would probably have been called something like Asperger's syndrome or you know, some sort of autism. But but he lived alone in a little bubble. Nobody got in. He never came out. I share with Deirdre about a term that we use in marriage and family therapy called stonewalling to describe someone who's emotionally shut off from others and wants to get away from the world. He was painfully shy. He would never approach another person and ask, you know, start up a conversation. But in fact, Alex has grown deep friendships in recent years. This year, he got married to Sani, the woman we meet in the film. And many wonder if he'll heed their advice to pull back from risky climbs before it's too late. I learned from his mom about the human side of this person so many people think of as superhuman. He wants to see his grandchildren grow up. Deirdre Wallenick's book, The Sharp End of Life, is about blossoming, about her own life as a woman in a family of rock-like stoicism, and about finding crevasses from which to climb toward who you're really meant to be. Most people walk around and never know where their limits lie. Physical limits, mental limits, uh, emotional limits, they don't know because they've never been tested. Push to the limit, you know, and beyond. And that's the only way to find out where your limits are, is to go out and push them. If you really get to know Deirdre's writing and her story, you realize this isn't a mom trying to justify why she's become a free-range parent. Hers is the story of a lifelong teacher, a lifelong learner, learning from our missteps and our catastrophic falls. It was winter. It was a horrible storm had come down from Alaska and, and completely covered the mountain and blew him off the, the peak. And he went tumbling down and finished in a pile of boulders. We talk about who's more crazy, the person who lives their whole life afraid of taking risks or afraid of upsetting others, or the person who steps into places of power they have prepared their whole life for. The sharp end of a climbing rope is the leader's end. It required immense preparation. Today, we'll learn from Alex's own mom about what would push someone to such an extreme place in life and what our judgment of someone like Alex may mean about our own fears. I always flinch when the movie gets to that point. Welcome to episode 18 of The Soul of Life, The Edge of Fear, Alex Honnold's mom on the free solo mindset.
At age 58, Deirdre Wallenick took up rock climbing with her son, Alex Honnell, a world-renowned climbing phenom that is referred to by some of the most famous in the climbing community as a unicorn. No one compares to him in his ability. To give you an idea, the difficulty rating scale for rock climbing has added grades because of Alex. Climbing journalist Mark Sinnott put it this way, those free solos that Alex has done have so astonished the world and set new benchmarks, much the way Roger Bannister redefined distance running when he broke the four-minute mile in 1954. When we think of other sports, we think of basketball. And when we people think, think of people who have redefined those sports, we think of people like Michael Jordan. Alex is a Michael Jordan for rock climbing. And it was only after Alex's astonishing, but for him, minor feats that he began getting these accolades. His 2008 rope-free ascents of the Northwest Face, of Yosemite's Half Dome and the Moonlight Buttress in Utah's National Zion Park. At the age of 66, Alex's mom, Deirdre, became the oldest woman to climb El Capitan, the iconic 3,200-foot granite wall in Yosemite National Park in October of 2017. For her, this wasn't just any climb. It was the captain, which is the most prized big walls in the world. But that same year in June, just a few months earlier, Alex free soloed this sheer granite wall that rises half a mile vertically on the free rider route, 30 separate pitches of grueling endurance that demands perfection or delivers instant feedback of death. I'm here today with Deirdre Wallenick because she wrote a book about her life, overcoming some of life's difficulties, finding courage. She wrote The book is called The Sharp End of Life, A Mother's Story. It's about her journey onto the wall with Alex. Welcome, Deirdre. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Do you ever get tired of being called Alex's mom? <laughs> Everybody asks me that. No, I love being Alex's mom. What, what a place of distinction. <laughs> no, it's, it's been a wild ride and an honor. And no, I just love being Alex's mom. You're, you're an accomplished... It doesn't, doesn't get old. Yeah. It doesn't get old. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I can imagine. And, and, well, I could imagine it both ways, actually. But, but that's nice to hear. You're, you're an accomplished mother. And I want to talk about that first. You're a wonderful mother. Um, Thank you. A good mother that has an amazing relationship to her two children who happen to be endurance athletes. Um, your daughter, right. Stacia, is also an endurance athlete. And, and you've become one, really, over the year. You've run many marathons. Right. You first started running with Stacia and then um, uh, slowly but surely, or maybe all of a sudden, you, you got onto the wall and, and then began uh, doing it. Can you, let's talk about the mother part first, and then we'll talk about some yeah. of your achievements. Um, w- when I read your book, what I got the sense for, because, uh, you know, Alex um, wrote a book that I read, Alone on the Wall. And, right. and I think everyone uh, thinks of him that way, thinks of him as this unicorn, as this uh, superhuman, people use those words, that he's in this, he's there right. by himself. And in fact, he right. even talks about how, the singular focus of being out there is he really can't be, for example, thinking about his, his wife, Sonny or you, or right. he has to right. be out there by himself. And, and yet right. I got the sense when I read, read your book and heard your story that in fact, Alex is very human. He's very emotional. Uh, he, he's very relational. He has this mm-hmm. life mm-hmm. that people kind of edit out because of their, maybe their right. own perception right. that right. He, he can't be human. Right. But you seem to really right. humanize him. I, I, why did you want to tell the story of your family? 
just to get the real picture out there, really, basically. Um, I mean, Alex was my baby boy. He's and he was a little boy, cute as a button, and 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 a real handful to raise because he was driven to climb all the time from birth. So that made my life miserable <laughs> for a long time, for many years until I could come to grips with what that meant. You know, I didn't know about climbing when he was a kid, and nobody knew about climbing back then. And and so. People, as you said, people have a completely skewed view of him because the only thing that gets out into the media and the press is these amazing feats of his. He is in a world of his own when it comes to endurance and accomplishing things like this. And he is the unicorn. There's nobody else like him on the planet. And uh, I always laugh or chuckle when I hear people compare him to like Michael Jordan or other people in other sports like that. In none of those sports, if you don't make it, you won't die. So the stakes are totally different. You know, baseball, tennis, whatever you compare him to, running like that first example you gave. Yes, to a certain extent that's true, but in none of those sports will you die if you don't get the gold medal. You know, right. So it's a totally different animal, you know, totally different. And people don't think of it that way. All they see is this phenomenal sensationalism, you know, of the press and the media. But that's that's so not Alex. <laughs> He's a, a really nice guy and, and and a sweetheart and very involved in, in humanity and saving the planet and making the world a better place for people. And that's his drive. But the only thing that gets out there is the sensationalism. Right, right. The, the, the image that struck me that I just, that came to my mind, you mentioned how the, it's incomparable, the sport is, is in it. I think maybe that's what we can talk about today. You're a climber. I'm not a climber, but you did enter this world of, of climbing to understand it, I think. Right. And uh, right. I, the image for me that came to mind was as if it's sort of, if for people to understand this who are not climbers, it's like ballet with a gun to your head where you've got to get yeah, perfection. Yeah. If you don't do that pirouette perfectly, you die. You're gone. <laughs> right. You're gone. And so, right. uh, you know, right. that to me as a psychologist, as somebody in this field of psychology and particularly in relationship and attachment, um, how we attach right. or don't attach to things. Um, right. And as, a, right. as, as an athlete myself, as someone, I wrote a book called 10 Myths About the Emotionally Unavailable Man. So I've studied this uh-huh. Uh-huh. idea that especially men, um, Right. Can can have right. an ability, and, and, and as you point out, on on the spectrum of disorders, sometimes it becomes it goes over the edge. But men, typically, at least the stereotype for men is that we do we have an ability to detach more. We have an ability to go into battles. Historically, anthropologically, right. men were the ones going into battles and right. kind of detach from. Well, they weren't they weren't bothered with those little things like child raising and cooking and sewing the clothes. Yes, <laughs> they were they were allowed to go out and do these things. <laughs> right, right, right. It seems almost as though that's part of the archetype that Alex may tap into. Um, right, and and. In, that's what maybe perhaps what we admire about him or, or right. fear. And I think, you know, that's the thing we'll talk about too, that there, he inspires right. both this awesome inspiration, but also maybe right. revulsion or and a, re- a revulsion. That's a good word for it. Hold on just a second. I forgot to turn on the lights. <laughs> you're a very bright person, Deirdre, but now you're <laughs> even brighter. Thank you. <laughs> um, you mentioned Alex as a boy, uh, as a baby growing up. What were some of the things that set him apart? You, you talk about this in your book. What, what was different? How did you know he was different? He was different from birth. I mean, the day he was born, he could stand up. 
which is totally unheard it's of. It's astonishing. I mean, there's that, there's that unicorn thing. The day he, he, he had powerful thighs and he could, you know, babies grasp all the time. If you let him grasp your little fingers, he would, on your lap, you know, he would stand up. Totally impossible. People don't believe me when I say that, but I lived through it. And I, there, there were a lot of incredible moments raising Alex, and that was the first. And the first thing everybody said when they came that day to see the new baby, the first thing everybody said to a person, they looked into the bassinet and said, what big hands he has. So he had these huge, powerful mitts and powerful thighs. He was born for climbing. Yeah, I, I, and I do want to encourage people to, to read your, your narrative of this and, and get your book. Yeah, there are a lot of un- unimaginable stories in that book. A lot of things that people will say, "Oh, that's, that's that can't be. That's not possible." But but we lived it, and yeah, it is possible. <laughs> and just like people say, "Oh, you can't climb that three thousand foot thing cliff by yourself," but right, you did. Right, um, and, and you're a tremendous writer. I want to compliment you on on writing Thank you. with with such clarity. It's you know, and that is your that before being a rock climber and before being Alex's mom. I mean, you're always Alex's mom, but before being famous right, for being right. Alex's mom. You you taught um, and studied language and English and literature and um, can you and I've been a writer all my life. You've been a writer your entire life, yeah. And yeah. and so it, it it really comes across and it's a wonderful book to read. I, I read it literally in a, in, a, in a few days. It was it just took me took me from one to a page, page turner. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Thank you. It, it's always good to hear that. Certainly. And uh, and can you paint the picture a little bit about your entree into climbing? I started climbing because I wanted to understand his world. I wanted to be part of his world and his, his entire world was climbing. So as long as I wasn't climbing, I, I had no idea what he did when he left the house, you know, and two days later he'd come back and he'd tell me stories that I had no clue what he was talking about. So I learned to try it out. And um, one, I'd climbed one day with him at the gym, the climbing gym. And then he left on another trip and, and I was on my own. So I started climbing at the gym by myself and I went there and made some new friends and, and I climbed with him. Um, as to the as to the feats, <laughs> um, I don't think of them as feats. I just think of them as uh, you know a little goal I set for myself. And like I've I've always been a sort of goal driven person, you know, a striver, if you will. And I I don't think I've ever set a goal for myself that I haven't met, I haven't done, accomplished, if you will. Um, so. You know, he, Alex says, let's go climb such and so. And, and, and I say, okay. And I trade for it and I go do it. You know, so I don't think of them as big feats. A lot of them were. <laughs> and since you read the book, you know, a lot of them were, especially, of course, El Cap. Mm. But but as, as anybody in business, like yourself, or anybody in business or any walk of life knows, success is in the preparation you know, over-preparing is the key to success, really. And so I've always believed that. I've always done that. I mean, I've I've had many different iterations of myself. You know, I've been an orchestra conductor. I worked in the airlines. I, I was a tour guide. I did a lot of different things. And um, that's the key. You know, over-preparation is the key. So, yeah, I guess they are feats. And, and the key was preparing. You didn't talk about this in your book, Deirdre, but I want to. I want to bring it up. Uh, we share a background, a Polish background, uh, and and oh, and, right, and right. if I close my eyes for a moment when I just listened to your answer, I could have I could have said that that you were that it was my grandmother, 
um, who, who oh, was really? uh, first generation Polish. And what she would say, and she did not have the the luxury of of, uh, of an education, but she worked on the farm, right. and, and she, you know, it would be mm-hmm. the same sort mm-hmm. of thing. It would be like, you know, this is just who we are. This is, of course, we're going right. to. Right. Of course we're going to succeed. There's tomorrow, like, of course. Right, um, right, right. You set yourself a goal and you just work towards it and do it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it, it yeah. seems like in those immigrant families that we came from, that that was, that was probably right. something we've right. inherited. They understood that. They really understood that. Uh, as you said um, earlier, that education is a luxury. And they knew this and, you know, they, they instilled that in us. And, yeah, I agree. Right, right. Free Solo is the documentary that National Geographic put out. It won seven Emmys and an Academy Award for the Best Documentary Feature in 2019. And it's widely acclaimed. This is kind of what brought Alex, one of the things, but one of the things that brought him, especially into the world of non-climbers, people who really aren't following, uh, you know, right. the, 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 the latest. Um, and it's be- into the mainstream. The mainstream, so. right? And this was because of his yeah. his so- his free solo climbing without ropes of El Capitan. Something that people, uh, even experienced climbers, uh, some of the most outstanding climbers, would say, "No, there's no way we should even think about doing that." Um, right. And I want to mention one thing and 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 ask you to comment on this. You know, it, it, it's widely acclaimed, and I think, and I want to use the word entertaining. Um, on the on yeah. the one hand, because it I is. think that that's an aspect of it, but it also I think is a, is a le- it's sort of educational in other ways. I think if we allow it to uh, be be such a thing, th- there was a critical review, and I don't I'm not sure if you're aware of this. The New York Times, Jeanette Katsoulas said it's a cautionary study of what can happen when you don't hug your children, and, and I don't I don't think she was joking about mm-hmm. that. Alex um, yeah, in yeah, the yeah. film makes a point of saying he learned how to hug. He had to sort of teach himself how to hug. Um, yeah, I always, I always flinch when the movie gets to that point because that's so not true. I mean, it's, it's true only for the Honnold family, not for the Wallenick family. I see. You know? Say more. So, yeah. Yeah, well, um, I, I come from a Polish-American family. And, uh, you know, we hugged and kissed every time we left the house, every time we came back in. You know, we, that, was, that was life. That I had never seen it in anything different than that. So I, I always hugged my kids and tried to. You know, tried to. With kid number one, you know, his big sister, We're, it was just the two of us living in Japan. You know, she was born in Japan, lived there the first two years of her life until her brother was born. So with her, I had free reign. You know, it was just Charlie was always out at work or something, and I, I was along with the baby. With Alex, though, Alex always preferred to emulate his dad, and his dad suffered from, I don't know, Nowadays, it would probably have been called something like Asperger's syndrome or you know, some sort of autism. But, but he lived alone in a little bubble. Nobody got in. He never came out. And so Alex emulated him. He, he idolized him because dad was the outdoor guy. Dad was the adventurer. Dad would drive anybody anywhere because being on the road was his monomania. You know? And so Alex would imitate that today. So he wouldn't let me touch him. He wouldn't let me hug him, wouldn't let me come near him. So it was driven by Alex, not by me. And uh, and fortunately, Alex is intelligent enough. I'm, I'm not sure if that's the term, but he taught himself out of that. He, he noticed that other people seem to do this and other people seem to do that. And so he taught himself out of it. So he sees that as him. 
you know, coming from him, but it did come from him. It, it's such a wonderful story of blossoming, blossoming your own blossoming. You, you, yeah. I think yeah. I want people to hear that about, and, and again, to, to read your book, to hear that this isn't just a, a, a technical book. Alex's book is more technical about rock climbing. Yours is really yeah. about the yeah. story and the journey of blossoming as a woman uh, coming into her power and realizing that, um, you know, she was with someone who, uh, it was it was a dead marriage. You, you're right, and and yeah, um, yeah. I you know I use the term Deirdre. I'm not sure if this is a new term for you, but in in the marriage, in family, and uh, counseling literature, we have a term called stonewalling, and that sort of refers to yeah. gar, you know garden variety things. We do it all the time. We kind of ghost people. That's sort of the term now, but it's sort of shutting down emotionally. Right. right. And and stonewalling is a major sort of thing that it's a, it's a defense. It's a protection, and it's it feels like there's. Right. And the irony is not lost on the idea that Alex developed this outsize. Of course, he had this physical ability, but then almost a perfect storm. I'm not sure if you've heard of the the book by uh, David Epstein called The Sports Gene. Uh, but he talks about some some people are just, they're given the uh, almost the, the, the right set of genes, but then also the right set of circumstances, sometimes challenging family circumstances, right. which cause right. the genes to express themselves in a certain way. Do you mm-hmm. see a connection between Alex's um, you know, father's influence and and his sort of going out and going onto these walls. Um, Alex would have done that anyway. Wh- whoever his parents were, that's where Alex was bound from birth to be on the wall somewhere, to be on a building or a tree or uh, whatever. And so, in that way, no, it didn't matter who his father was, who his mother was. He was going to go do that. Period. End of story. Um, he, he might have done it differently. He might have been less, um, what's the word, less unwilling t- to ask people to climb with him. Mm-hmm. Because that's how he got started as a free soloist. I mean, free soloing is climbing without ropes. And it's dangerous. It's far more dangerous than the other kind of climbing with protection. And so he would go out to these places to climb that, you know, called to him. And he wanted to climb them, but he was painfully shy. He would never approach another person and ask, you know, start up a conversation and all that. And that part came from his father, I believe. Mm-hmm. Certainly not from me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So to a certain extent, maybe a little bit, but not fully. It, it sounds like you're saying that really, you know, for an observer like me to, to, to try to sort of fit Alex into one of these boxes that may help me make <laughs> sense of it. It doesn't quite, it's not so simple. Yeah, yeah. A little bit of this box, a little bit of that box, and you know, but but no one big box. Yeah, yeah. And you're describing a really beautiful journey that that I think people can can witness even in the course of the documentary, um, meeting uh, yeah. his girlfriend now oh, yeah. his wife Sani, and and opening himself up to from this painfully shy person to someone who communicates with her yeah. and and accepts her influence, communicates with her and, and with the whole world. He's become an amazing speaker. And he could never speak in public like just 10 years ago. Yeah. He could never have done that. So that's been wonderful to watch. It really is. There's so many lessons, I think. And, and it's not every day that we find someone in, in sports or in public life that has that embodies some of those traits. Um, um, right, right. Can you speak a little bit about the, the accomplishment, the technical side of it? Um, some of these, some of these routes. So Alex prepared. I mean, I think people might hear about his feet and and think, "Wow, that's kind of stupid." I can't believe somebody would be so reckless. It's it seems at first glance, it seems like somebody climbing some a, a right. route thirty pitches right. like that. Some of these pitches actually required right. when I when I mentioned ballet earlier, it really 
it, it, it almost mm-hmm. makes sense that someone with his ability could do this. Once you see how oh, many, yeah. makes many times sense. he tried yeah. it and failed with ropes and very cautiously marking with chalk and right. make, going right. out after right. the rainstorm the night before just to rappel down and see if his chalk oh, marks goodness. were there. Um, you know, this is a guy yeah. who cares. He yeah. Can't, he, yeah, the amount of preparation is... is he wants yeah. to get off the, the wall. The amount of preparation is like unthinkable. Un- right. He, he, he wants to see his grandchildren grow up. That's always been his goal. And uh, yeah, he's not in it for risk. And we, yeah, we have to talk about risk yeah. later on too. Yeah. Risk. Yeah. Can you, can you talk about the, yeah. the if, you, if you're uh, familiar enough to talk about it, the, the boulder problem or the monster off with, those are the two, I think some, the, the two, like uh, if they're the crux of that climb. Um, well, well, those are the most tense moments, the most uh, concentrated moments of the climb. Um, um, he has to, I mean, he's standing on something that you, as a non-climber, you you probably wouldn't even be able to see. And he's trusting his whole life to that as he reaches for something else that you probably wouldn't even notice if you're not a climber. And he's going to trust his life to that too. And it's far. It's, you know, he has has to throw over, throw across for it, you know, it's not just right there for him to reach it. And there, there's a, there are several steps like that where he has to trust his foot to hold him on this invisible little nothing the size of a dime. A dim, like a dimple, a dime. like for a fingernail. Like, yeah, yeah. And, but he has, uh, to you and me, we look at that and we say, how could anybody? But he's used little dimples like that a million times already. We don't see that in the movie, yeah. you know, but... Yeah. For the last 10 years, he's been climbing on El Cap. 10 years of practice, that doesn't go into the movie. Yeah. You don't really Mastery. see that. He talks about the two years. Yeah, he talks about the two years that he prepared the climb. But it's really a lot more than that because he's been climbing El Cap over and over with his, all his friends and you know, rock climbers for, for 10 years mm-hmm. now. And so he knows that little dimple or that little thing, the size of a dime. He knows that can hold his foot. We don't know that. So we get really scared. You know, can't watch the movie. We watch it like this. You Sweating. Know? <laughs> but <laughs> right, right, right. People's palms sweat mm, when they I watch the movie because they, because they haven't experienced that kind of training. Right. And they don't know that that little dimple thing can hold his foot. Right. You know, right. so, but he yeah. does. Yeah, that's what makes the difference. Success is in the over-preparation. It, it comes back to, I can see where he got this from. And in and, and, and hearing you, I think yeah. that's something also uh, remarkable for people to witness is that this that we don't achieve um, great results without the people closest to us. And and you're, you seem to be, and I'm so grateful that you, you are a public person, Deirdre, and that you, you were prepared for this uniquely, uh, some, someone who's well-spoken and well-written to be able to, Give people a sense that it's not just, I think we live in a very individualistic culture where there is this sort of mythology about, well, people just walk off one day and then they become great. And that's really not the story. Can you, if if, if you're able to. Yeah, that's the sensationalism of it. I'm happy, always happy to give the other side of the story, as you say. It's wonderful. I I speak a lot a lot about this all over. Yeah, it needs to be told because the sensational version of it is, is, it's not that it's untrue, but it's not quite true. Yeah. You know? It doesn't help us, I think, to believe those myths because at the end of the right. day, we, right, we exactly. have our own mountains to climb. Uh, 
Exactly. And it, it requires day. really small, boring, frankly, boring. A lot of life is pretty boring. Right. Even when you're uh, uh, somebody right. like Alex, right. he's doing these things, um, uh, right. to, you know, right. re- re- repeatedly. Um, if you're able to read. Right. Well, we sure hanging on a rope from the top of El Cap, you know, a thousand foot rope. They had, they had these enormous ropes where they can practice, you know, hanging on a rope and doing the same movement over and over and over a thousand times. That's pretty boring. Yeah. Fortunately for him, though, he's doing this in the most gorgeous place imaginable. So he gets to enjoy it, too. But, but it's work. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure. sure it's work. It's To stay it's at work. that level oh, and to stay sure. safe, it's work. He works really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about your own uh, success, uh, you know, climbing El Cap. What was that? What was that like for you? I know you don't want to give too much away, but it's not easy, is it? But yeah, it required immense preparation. You know, I asked Alex, uh, Alex and I had done, we had climbed a, a, a smallish big wall. A big wall in, in climbing means uh, something vertical, difficult. And usually takes most climbers more than a day. That's a big wall. So we had done a big wall, he and I, um, just down the valley from El Cap. It's called uh, Royal Arches. And we did it in a day, a comfortable day. We were down in time for dinner. And so I asked him after that, uh, all the way down from that, coming down from that one, I was thinking to myself, hmm, I just did a big wall. I wonder if I could ever do that other big wall down the valley there, you know, El Capitan. Um, which is about twice as high as the one we had done. Um, so it was kind of optimistic on my part, but it, it again, if you're a climber, it just calls to you. I mean, it's just the ultimate challenge, you know. And, my son, every, and everybody I know now has climbed it over and over. Well, you know, Alex has been my introduction to this amazing world of climbers. They're, they're an amazing bunch. And they do these things like it's, you know, going out for coffee in the morning and they went up El Cap. Alex goes up El Cap and comes down and then has lunch. You know, it's, it's incredible. <laughs> so I asked him after that, I asked him, you know, do you think there's any way maybe someday you could get me up El Cap, you know, leave me up El Cap? Because I can't, I can't climb it, uh, you know, on the rock with my hands and thing, my fingers. And I certainly can't lead any of it. The leading end is the harder end, the sharp end of the rope. But so, but if anybody in the world could get me up El Cap, it was Alex. You know, I don't think I would have trusted anybody else to do that because I know I'm not a very good climber. I'm not an outstanding climber by any stretch of the imagination. I would never will be. I'm, I started too late. I'm mom, and, and I have uh, anyway. I'm not. I'm not a, a very accomplished climber, although I've done a lot of accomplished things. But they were moderate climbs. So, you know, he was, he was my man. So I asked him and he said, uh, yeah, sure. But you have to learn how to jug. I had no clue what that meant. <laughs> but like I said before, preparation is everything. He said, I have to know how to jug to do that. Well, darn it, I'm going to learn how to jug. And so I, you know, he went off on another trip and I, I contacted all my friends. And I said, you know what jugging is? What's jugging? And I found out, I looked online and did all my research. And then I got myself the gear that I would need and uh, started setting up at the gym, uh, you know, to practice. And, and uh, I practiced for, I worked hard on it for 18 weeks to get ready for that climb. I treated it like a college course, you know, 18 weeks, three days a week. So I drove into the Valley, you know, to Yosemite Valley for uh, every week and stayed for three days. 
and I had a place to stay. It was really uh, all the stars aligned for this thing to happen. You know, um, a, a friend, a good friend of Alex and new friend of mine um, had a, he's a ranger and his house is right there, right at the bottom wow. of El Cap, uh, bottom of the rock, the rock wall. And um, I could stay in his house, you know, so I, uh, it, everything aligned. It all came together. So I went there every, it all came together. I went there every day, every week. 18 weeks and worked for three solid days. Wow. And jugging for people who don't realize you can say it better than I can, but is, is using ju- a device called a Jumar, which is like a, a winch yeah. really, but you're, it's like climbing a rope ladder, but the no, ladder no, is moving. No, it's not like a winch because a winch hoists you I up. See. This does not. Uh, it's just a handle with one for each hand. And the handle has teeth in it that you can open and close. And so it attaches to the rope. It will go up. You can push it up, but it won't come down. Mm-hmm. And that attaches to your harness so that you can lean back on it. And it attaches to your feet. So what you do is you ladder yourself up the rope, one side and then the other side, you know, left and right. And it calls for an incredible upper body, you know, shoulder, arm, back strength because right. you have to push yourself up. Your your entire weight is on these things. Right. So you're pushing yourself up, then you stand on that, and then you push the other side up, and you stand up on that. And just standing on it is hard, hard physical work. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to explain without having seen it. Not, not every sixty year old would think of that as as a as a thing that they might want to start at that point in their life. No. Why, why, did, why did you want to climb with Alex? Why was it so important? And I'm going to have you read a section if you have that. Now, why did you start climbing with Alex? So we're reading from the sharp end of life, my book about climbing El Cap. I was beginning to understand in a vague, shadowy way what free soloing meant. It is also equally clear that I had no clue what it really meant in the world of climbing, in my son's head in the history of human physical and mental achievement, the most stupendous, unthinkable, history-making climb of all time, soon to be followed by several more, equally far beyond the normal scope of human ability. Now, as the climber, I still can't wrap my mind around what he did. Back then, though, that blissful ignorance protected me. I'm not sure at which point I allowed his accomplishment to finally fully penetrate my mind deep, deep down to the core. Maybe it was after the 60 minutes film crew left my house at the end of a several day session filming Alex at home. Maybe it was after the film crew from Spain and Southern California left Sacramento or the National Geographic crew or after I saw some of the videos. It was a gradual dawning. Not so much a a realization as a slow, creeping incredulity. Was I understanding this right? Is that really what he did? The videos made it pretty darn clear. That was what he had done, and the rest of the world was in awe. Me? Awe, for sure. But lots of other mom stuff mixed in. Every time I went to a showing of one of his videos, the same question was thrown at me. How can you stand it? Or as one middle-aged woman whispered to her friend sitting next to me at a show in one of his award-winning movies, how would you like to be that kid's mother? <laughs> how indeed. It was something I had to figure out fast. You've been climbing with Alex and figuring out his world. And, and yeah, exactly. you've found your own world. Um, is it fair for us, for people like me, 
on the outside to scrutinize uh, Alex's motivations. I mean, when we talk about risk, we're going to talk a little bit about a close call that he had recently. Um, you know, this question people have, like, how could, you know, how could a mother let him do that? Is is that? <laughs> yeah, I've gotten that a lot. I, how, how, why would you let him do that? How do you respond to that? I didn't. I didn't let him do that. <laughs> do you let your child breathe? I mean, come on. Do you let your child eat, go to school? The only thing that he lived for was climbing. There was no way on earth I was going to stop him from climbing, no matter what I said. You're listening to the Soul of Life podcast with me, Keith Miller. Every week I bring you a new episode that hopefully inspires you to reflect more on who you are and who you want to be in this rapidly changing world. If this time we share together moves you somehow closer to who you are or lights up parts of you that have been unplugged, I want to hear from you. And please share the love. Take a moment to find the Soul of Life podcast in the social media where you hang out on iTunes, Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, and let me know who you are. No matter what punishments, I, you know, no, nothing would have stopped him from climbing. I could see this very early on, I mean, very early on. Um, I mean, just little things like going up on the roof. Um, when he was like six or seven, you know, we moved into this house and it's a one-story house and, you know, the roof is just one story up. It's To him, that's nothing. To me, I wouldn't go up there, you know, with normal shoes or without ropes, but to him, that's nothing. So he pestered me every single day. Can I go up on the roof? Can I go up on the roof and see what's up there? You know, this was the other world, the world he lived for. Mm. And I always said, no, I mean, who would let their seven-year-old kids climb up on the roof? You know, come on. You asked all those same um, questions. You went through oh, goodness, that. Yes. Yeah. And so one day I was in the kitchen, all of a sudden I heard crunch, crunch over my head. Well, guess who was up on the roof? And I knew it. And, and I knew it was inevitable. I mean, I, I, I said no, kind of like with a little inner inner smile. I mean, I knew it was going to happen eventually because that's all he lived for. So the context really, really matters. It's, it seems like, you know, when, when those of us, you know, I, I, yeah. I shared with you um, as we were preparing to do this, that, that I wanted to talk about fear and risk and how per, our perception of mm -hmm. fear is so relative and it's so important how it plays a role in our yes. success or yes. lack thereof. Um, you know, my son is, yeah. is turning 15 tomorrow. In fact, he's, and he keeps reminding us he's going to have his, <laughs> his driving license by the end of the year. And we've got, you know, six, these six lane highways, you're in California, you have the same thing. I ski when I go skiing out in, in the Rockies, I ski double black diamond slopes, you know, not every slope, but, um, you know, we, we hit some hard stuff. Um, and all of us get on these airplanes and fly at 30,000 feet, um, I, or across the street in front of a bus. This, or, yeah, right? We live around. Sure. We live in a world of firearms. Without getting into that um, polarizing discussion, but we live on the razor's edge of life. I would say, Deirdre, and um, and, yeah. and yet some yeah. people I think look at Alex and say, "Wow, he's playing Russian roulette." Like, like can't right. you just right, find right, right. you know you know you could learn, or even you, Deirdre, you could you could have you're a musician, you could have aspired to be you know some sort of diva or something you know that yeah, wouldn't yeah, have risked yeah, your life um yeah. are, are these right, socially right. acceptable risks um different from what alex does um yes and no it, in many ways rock climbing is far safer than a lot of the things you've mentioned far safer it, it depends on how you do it and how careful you are and 
whether you use protection. Free, free solo climbing, you know, climbing with no protection, no rope, is definitely um, more consequential. Okay, we're not going to call it riskier. Risk and consequence are two very different things. But uh, free soloing is far more consequential, yes. Uh, whether it's riskier depends on the climber and the conditions and, and all that stuff. Like what Alex did on El Cap. <laughs> if I tried it, yes, it would definitely be 100% risky. You know, I would fall and die. Ten years of practice on his part, and it's not risky. And maybe, you know, 5%, uh, whatever, whatever. But, yeah, a lot of people are not uh, encouraged to push their limits in today's society. They are not, definitely not encouraged to do that. But that's the only way you can learn where your limits are. I mean, we don't, most people walk around and never know where their limits lie. Physical limits, mental limits, uh, emotional limits, they don't know because they've never been tested. Push to the limit, you know, and beyond. And that's the only way to find out where your limits are is to go out and push them. I have, like you said, I could have been a musician and said, yeah, well, I was. I conducted an orchestra for four years and I ran an orchestra. Um, and I performed all over the Sacramento region in a lot of different things. And yes, it's wonderful. I love it. It does not answer the same things in me and my soul as rock climbing does. It does not drive me in the same way, does not prove the same things to me, you know, at all. Um, so, yeah, the answer to all those questions is yes. <laughs> I, I hear you. I, I went through something uh, this past year, uh, which I'll just call a very simply depression. Um, but a lot of people okay. dance around that sometimes and call it burnout and, you know, really never really yeah, talk yeah. about yeah, a lot of different, lot of words, different for words for it. it. But it was, it was something where, um, you know, you write that dying takes many forms. And so does living. The hard part is recognizing them. And that's something that I, yes, yes. you know, if you had spoken that to me a year ago or six months ago, that would have really, really hit the bullseye for me, Deirdre, that, that in fact, the tragedy, people, I think, we make a big deal of this. In our field, we talk about projection. And I think that's probably what's going on yeah, when people yeah. see Alex. They, what they exactly. are projecting onto him is their own denial of how perhaps um, dull or dead they may feel or depressed about something yeah. and they yeah. see him and this is yeah. a man who is alive right. and well right. in fact he's not falling oh he is so well yes so so much healthier than most of yes. us yes yes it seems that that that's partly where the criticism or the revulsion comes from that um yes yes but um Yes, a lot of that is is judgmental and it comes from that like you said and it's misplaced and and full of hubris they, it's like it's like the the old parents around us when Alex was young, when he was three and four and five and seven, and the other parents in our, our we lived on a, a court, you know, around court, four houses, and and they didn't approve of climbing the other parents, and and so you know they would tisk tisk and you know why do you allow him to do that, you know that kind of thing, when. You know, who whose call is it to say what's good for somebody? And you would say, how could you, know, you not allow they, him to do that, to live? Would exactly, you, would you keep exactly, a butterfly in exactly. its cocoon? They would, go out and, they would go out and practice batting the ball with their kids hour after hour after hour. So then that was acceptable. But Alex's endeavor was not acceptable. So oh, why would I allow that? So mm, that's hubris. Mm, I mean, who are you mm. to judge a passion in someone else? 
You know, yeah. we can't judge and, that. And, and, you know, energy is a word that you use the word passion. And to me, that that connotates energy. And yeah. when we talk about depression yeah. and yeah. we talk about recovery or finding your soul, finding what I would what I use, the, right. use the secular term for this, like sort of the, the spirit that we have and that we perhaps were yeah. born with and, and over time can lose right. because of all of the yeah. Oh, yeah, weight for sure. of life. It can be taught out of us. Taught right? out of us. Right. A lot of it's... And it right. seems like you're calling us um, and leading by example on the sharp end, actually. You're leading this climb. You're saying, hey, get mm-hmm. out. That's how you find joy. That's how you find delight by, by testing right. and right. finding the edge. Right. Right. The sharp end of a climbing rope is the leader's end. There are two people climbing on a rope, you know, both ends. They they tie into both ends. The leader climbs up first and places protection in the rock to hold that rope so that if the leader falls, he just dangles from that last piece of protection. And as he goes up, he sews it up, you know, another piece, another piece, another piece, higher up, higher up, until you get to the top and you make an anchor. So the leader's end of the rope is far more consequential. If the leader falls, he can get banged up. She she can do herself damage. Or if you fall close enough to the ground, you can hit the ground or hit a ledge and really get banged up. Or you could die. Sometimes uh, if you did not place the protection properly, carefully enough, when you fall, the force of the fall pulls it out. And, And a lot of some climbers die from that because their protection pulls out and then they hit the ground. Um, so the sharp end is the consequential end, the more dangerous end, the harder end of anything. And my entire life has been lived on the sharp end, the the hardest possible way. You know, um, at home with my own parents, it was like that. And then when I married Charlie, it was like that. And a horrible marriage that ended miserably. <laughs> Um, ended in, and anyway, long story short, my whole life was lived on the sharp end. So that's why the book is coming back. Right. And I appreciate that, Deirdre. I, I, you know, if a, a, a climber may want to hear more of the technical stories, but as a, as a person yeah, who, yeah. who is used to, I'm, since I'm not a climber to me, it's, it's, I mean, right. and to me, the climbing of my life is about understanding you know, these walls that we live in, right? To, to use the metaphor, mm-hmm. these prisons that, that we build for ourselves or get built for us. And you, mm-hmm. you, I think, have a courage and I think are setting an example for people. You know, I think we, we have, you know, and some, some people criticize our culture for this, that we're constantly kind of navel gazing or looking in our past, looking in the rear view mirror. But really, if we want to understand where we're going, it, we get to know our our past and our history. And the older I get, the right, more I'm right. interested in history. And you right. talk about your parents being not just typical 1950s parents, but maybe the stereotypical 1940s, 50s parents of children were seen and not heard and, and outright right. um, thought of as less lesser beings. Right. And, right. And, and, and that concept is even more, more heavily enforced in the Eastern European culture. And that's what they were, yes. you know, Polish. Yes. All, all my grandparents were from the old country, yeah. you know, as they call yeah. it. And so, yeah, even double that. Well, in, in double that. And to me, it's what you do with what we're given. You know, how, when we, uh, all right. the research bears this out in marriage, yeah. um, which, you know, I, I'm so excited to hear that Alex and Sonny are happily married and that's such a, they're so yeah, beautiful together yeah. in so many different ways. And yeah. uh, that, that it seems to be the lesson when people come to me as an expert in marriage that I'm constantly saying to them that the research bears out that it's not, what happens to you? It's not right. whether it's what you do it's what with, you do with yeah. these difficulties. Right. They are going to have difficulties. I say this to every young couple. Right. 
Uh, you right. are going to have difficulties. It is what you do with it. And like Alex on, right. on the ledge, it's yeah. how you find your hold. Right. Well, see, this is how Alex learned to free solo con. You teach yourself how to react or not. You teach yourself. This is, this is why they, they, they um, imaged his. Uh, oh, the, um, the amygdala. Yes. Right, right, right. Because they thought that it wasn't working or his brain was not firing or he didn't feel fear like normal people. Nonsense. He feels fear. But little by little, over these years, he's taught himself not to react. And that's where we are remiss, terribly remiss. Right. You know, and people just go off the handle, react, you know, without um, filter. And without realizing the consequences, so that it's almost as if his, if we right. were all rock climbers, right. perhaps we would have better marriages. I'm not sure. We could argue about that. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I'm not sure. Maybe. I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish maybe. that on everybody, but, um, yeah, yeah. you know, not, not every 66 year old is cut out for mountain climbing, Deirdre. Um, it's, it, it, no, it's, it's no. not like my parents are in their seventies and, you know, we always, I think we live, thankfully we live in a culture where even if we don't exercise, um, the older we get, mm-hmm. we at least feel guilty about it. We know that we should, <laughs> um, we know <laughs> right, it's good right, for right. us. Um, what, what would you say? You're a former marathoner. I mean, these are endurance sports. Um, what would you say to someone, the average person about getting out and reaching their potential? Um, oh, so much. <laughs> I could write a book about it. Um, you can't know what your potential is until you go out and try to find it. Really. I mean, I, I, when I was growing up and into adulthood, uh, until I lived in California, until I had babies, I quote unquote knew that I could never run or, or run distance, never do anything sustained and strenuous because I grew up in a house completely filled with cigar and cigarette smoke all the time. And I lived there for 25 years. So, you know, anything more strenuous than getting up from my chair and I was hopping and popping. So I took that as a signal. That was my cue. Uh, I couldn't do any of this stuff. But then I tried it. You know, my kids inspired me. Uh, my first run. Yeah, you guys had to read the story of my very first run. with, And that was with Alex. And six miles. <laughs> I still can't believe that. But... Um, so I tried it and, and the key is baby steps, little baby steps. And with each baby step, I saw that I could take another. And Alex is, Alex is an expert in this among many other things. He's an expert in this. He knows this deep in his heart. And he always did. Um, the first time I tried to run with the dog, I took the dog out for a walk and and I went, I kind of, it wasn't running. It was jogging, light jogging. And I just trotted along beside the dog. You know, it was a big dog and a Malamute, mm. large wolf-sized dog. And so I trotted along and then I got home. I discovered we'd gone a whole mile. You know, to me, this was unthinkable. And I came in yelling. Alex was still living there at the time. I came in yell, Alex, Alex, I ran a mile. You know, to me, this was unimaginable. And his answer was totally Alex. Oh, cool, Mom. If you can do a mile, you can do a mile and a half. Well, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, took the wind out of my sails, boy, and made me really think about that. And he's right. You can do a mile, you can do a mile and a, a quarter. Do a mile and a tenth, and then the next day you'll do the quarter, and the next day, and the next day. And baby steps are the answer. And before I knew it, I was running my first marathon. Me, who always th- thought that I couldn't get up from my chair without hopping and popping, I was running a marathon. So, so yeah, any... You know, the idea of organizing and conducting an orchestra, 
what a daunting proposition that is. But I just broke it down into little baby steps. I was in the you know, place where I had the opportunity to do that. I wound up conducting my own orchestra for four years and they're still out there playing. I don't, you know, I moved away, but you know, if you can, basically the message is if you can dream it, you can can do do it. it. And and the key is baby steps. You know, that's, that's my thing. Keep moving forward and, and, and that's my message. Keep climbing. Um, I want to circle back to, it's an amazing message. I want to say that it's a gift, I think, for anyone. Um, Your book, The Sharp End of Life, A Mother's Story, is really the story about moving forward incrementally, taking the next step, learning. Baby step, next baby step. Baby steps and learning um, and setbacks. Um, You know, Alex had a fall um, in Lake Tahoe. I forget what year you write about it, but he was snowshoeing, you said, with his father's, slate father's. Snowshoes, I believe, in a terrible snowstorm. What did you? I mean, yeah. there was serendipity in in the fact that he's still alive after that. Um, did you? Th- you thought it was a close call? I, I think. How close of a well, call? Yeah. <laughs> uh, for you or for me, it would have been a really close call. Alex just laughs it off. It's mom. You shouldn't have called nine one one. I would have been fine, and that's his take on on things. Um, and he knows it from experience, you know, and he probably would. It's, it's Mount Talak and Talak, Mount Talak is almost 10,000 feet tall. And it was winter. It was a horrible storm had come down from Alaska and, and completely covered the mountain and blew him off the, the peak. And he went tumbling down and finished in a pile of boulders. And yeah, he, he when he came to, he called me. Yeah, that's another story that's yeah, in the book. They've got to read it. They've got to read because there's so many pieces. You've got you to oh, hear the yeah. story. Yeah. Oh, that story is like, if you were a parent, mm. if you ever had anything to do with kids, it'll raise the little hairs on the back of your neck. Um, and so I did call 911 and they called out the helicopters and, you know, they rescued him. But um, to, to this day, whenever it gets mentioned, he, he chides me for that. He says, Mom, you shouldn't have called 911. I would have been fine. I could have walked out. And he probably could have. Knowing now what I know about him, about his limits and his endurance and his tenacity. Yeah, he probably would have been okay. And he would have got, however, when they were loading him into the helicopter, he did pass out a couple of times. And so if, it, if that had happened while he was driving home, he could have killed somebody. Yeah. Yep. You know? And a 19 year old doesn't think that right. way. Right, you know? right. I, I, I think, you know, it will be, it's amazing for me as a spectator, as a fan of you and your family and of Alex to, to be cheering for him every year, but yeah. it's also uh, a wonder for me and a real curiosity for me to, to see how he may evolve in his journey of, uh, you know, there's other people, right. Peter Croft is one of them, uh, 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 a free soloist like Alex, who, who was known for Astro Man um, in Yosemite. And, right. you know, these, are, these right. are not small things. And, and there are people at a certain point in their career, just like all of us, we begin to relate differently to our earlier risk-taking. And right. I, it, it, exactly. I wonder, I imagine you wonder how that. Yeah, well, and Alex is constantly evaluating that now because right now he's an old man in climbing. You know, he's 35 now. That's uh, pushing it, you know. But, um, but he has the foundation. Have you checked into the Honolulu Foundation? I have. That's amazing. Yep. Yeah. You, you know, all your listeners should check it out honoldfoundation.org. And that, you know, when the climbing starts to wane, he will always climb, but he'll climb less 
rigorous things, you know, and maybe I hope uh, a little less free sewing. <laughs> but as that starts to wane, his foundation will grow and grow and grow. And, and yeah, they're, they're doing wonderful, amazing things all around the world. Can you speak to what it, uh, what its goal or the mission is? Well, yes. It, it, the, he started it with his own money uh, many years ago um, after a trip to Africa where he got kind of introduced to people living basic primitive lives off the grid, off anybody's grid, off anybody's notice even. And this kind of, it, it enraged him. I mean, people shouldn't live like that. Now in the 20th, 21st century, people shouldn't live like that. And so he started this foundation uh, whose goal is to improve people's lives anywhere in the world um, in, a, uh, in a, uh, a way that is good for the planet. So mostly um, solar. Um, things so we're <laughs> I don't speak this sustainable uh, development su- sustainable not so much development but improvements for each person's mm-hmm. life you know like they 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 the foundation and another company went out into the Navajo reservation in southwest United States did you yeah. know that the Navajo Indians are completely off the grid they don't have electric power it's an enormous reservation the size of Connecticut maybe I mean it's huge and they have no electricity. This absolutely Ford Alex, when he, you know, he, he was climbing out there, and that's how he discovered it. So they went back with all their stuff, and, and they installed lights for people in their houses. Changes your life. Mm. Like they did in Africa, in Angola, in Africa, and in Kenya. One lamp, one solar-powered lamp changes a whole village's life. Because before that, when the sun's down, you have to go to bed. Can't do anything. And and in the equator, you know, equatorial com- countries like um, Angola, okay, yeah, no, that's not equatorial, but but in places like that, it's twelve hours of daylight, twelve hours of, of darkness. Mm-hmm. So you know what a what a massive crimp that puts in your life when you right. shut down yeah. it at day, at sundown. So he, they've been working hard. They just have an amazing um, thing going on in. Puerto Rico. In Puerto Rico, um, as you know, suffered from Hurricane Maria, you know, years back. They're still suffering from it. But Alex's foundation has partnered with Rivian, the, the maker of electric automobiles, um, sport adventure vehicles. And they're using, they're combining Rivian's batteries for storage with the Hano Foundation energy and, you know, the, the getting it done part. And they're, they've solved the, the issue. Next time there's a hurricane in Puerto Rico or, you know, the Caribbean, they're not going to go without power. Wow. It's impressive. You know? Yeah. yeah they're, they're changing lives all around the world. And it's an amazing thing. I, I just, I'm so proud of him for, for having done that. Yeah. It's, it's, he's giving back something he's, he's, he's had, I mean, even he points out this luxury life life to be able to do this, to devote his, his passion to what he wants to do. And he's, he's, he's sharing that with people. Um, Is there anything else that you wanted to add? It's very simple. If you can dream it, you can do it. Um, All all my teaching career, I've taught many different, in all my French classes, um, I always teach the proverb, you know, petit à petit, and, and I taught it to my children. And basically, it means little by little, the bird makes its nest, you know, one little twig at a time. One twig is nothing, you know, and you have, you know, the bird carries it for miles and they put, and finish with a, a beautiful nest for your babies and your planet, you know, little by little, you can do anything. 
I've always believed that. And, you know, the book is kind of a testament to that. And, and so is Alex's life. Really, really is. Deirdre Wallenick, author of The Sharp End of Life, A Mother's Story. It's really a pleasure to have you today. Thanks for fun being here. Thank, Thank you, you, Deirdre. Thanks for listening to The Soul of Life. This is Keith Miller. Oh, and don't forget, please leave a thumbs up or a like for this episode wherever you're listening so that others like you may find the soul of life. I mean, really, it's not every day you get to share the soul of life with someone. Okay, so you can post a comment or question on souloflifeshow.com. I'd love to hear from you. And please subscribe now to get the next episode. I look forward to sharing more of my soul of life with you. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go. How good is your Polish? Uh, troszeczkę. Ja mówię tylko troszeczkę. Yeah.